0: Hey, I'm Ryan. I've managed products at innovative companies like Weebly and Verb, and now I run my own. Each episode, I talk with product managers at some of the most successful companies in the world to learn how they do customer research, gather insights, and make the product decisions for both their customers and company. You'll get real-world advice on how to ship products people want and love. Now let's get into people-driven products. Welcome, Dan. Thanks so much for joining us today. You're the Senior Director of Product Management at Wealthfront, which is on a mission to build a financial system that favors people instead of institutions. So we can only imagine all the amazing insights you have to share with us today. No pressure, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having me. Can you start us off by telling a little about your professional journey and what ultimately led you to Wealthfront? I started my
1: career at Intuit, ironically enough, building banking products there, white label digital banking products for banks and credit unions. Uh, We served basically all of the banks that don't build their own. And uh, now I basically get to repeat that at Wealthfront, but doing it with the consumer at the center of everything. And so it's been a fun journey to basically not only work on delivering delightful banking products, but also think about how we help our customers just generally grow their savings for the long term.
0: Awesome. And how did you get into product management?
1: I stumbled into it, which I think is probably the way uh, most people get into it. Uh, There isn't a traditional career path. I was a biology major in undergrad, and so I loved science and experimentation. And as I think about product management, at its core, it's really about running experiments to learn about what customers want and what they value. And so uh, it started with sort of a love of that, started with a love of building and working with teams, and ultimately stumbled across an opportunity at Intuit That uh, was an early career rotational program focused on product management and product marketing. And uh, the rest is kind of history. Just kind of fell in love with the, uh, the process of working with engineering and building things and working with customers.
0: Awesome. And maybe someday there'll be a product management degree. But until then, I was just like you, stumbling into it myself. <laughs>
1: it's a common question of how do you get into product management? And the awkward thing is, uh, it is definitely a field that you know you have to learn by doing. But it's it's a question of how do you get started if you don't have experience? And so, uh, yeah, I was very fortunate to stumble into a program at Intuit that uh, was willing
0: to train me. That's awesome. And I love how larger companies are really building those programs themselves around that rotational program that apm program i know google pioneered that but i've seen a lot of great product managers come out of those programs and so we'll have to thank them until we have a more formal educational program that's right that's right before we jump into this question a few questions that i have here i'd love to start with the visionaries dilemma and it looks like right when you started at wealthfront or right before you had a key observation about Mixpanel. Help us understand what led to that insight and how your, evolu- your thinking has evolved since then.
1: You're speaking about an article I wrote uh, a few years back, but the this, this specific observation that prompted it was uh, in my last company, we uh, had implemented Mixpanel as a product analytics solution. And we had some very specific problems with how our metrics were getting reported through Mixpanel. And every time I would talk to our salesperson, uh, they were trying to sell me on some new shiny feature that they wanted us to roll out. And my point to them was always, how can you sell me on a new feature if the core product is not working? We ended up switching to Amplitude because they had had actually solved that problem, which was a, a very sort of nuanced infrastructural problem of how you actually calculate funnel conversion. But it delivered metrics we could trust, metrics I could report to our team, to our executive team. To our board and made my job easier. And at the end of the day, my feedback to Mixpanel at the time, I think they've changed quite a bit since then, and it's evolved. But my feedback to them at the time was, it doesn't make sense to expand into new product lines if you haven't first delighted your customer on the core use case they hired you for. The reason I hired Mixpanel was because I needed a solution to measure the metrics in our product and understand how our users are using it. Until they deliver on that, I would never think about using them for anything else. And so If you extrapolate that to a broader framework about how you think about product development, it's really, really critical to really know what your customer is hiring you for on that first use case and make sure you really delight them and nail that before you move on to sort of adjacent markets or problems. And so that is something that I had seen at at my last company as well, where we had likely, we had moved on to new product opportunities before we had fully nailed the core use case. And What it results in is a shifting of resources back and forth between different product lines in the company, but none of them ever really get traction or growth. And that's really kind of a that's a failure mode. And so my takeaway from that is when we look at building new products, and we do we very much do this at Wealthfront, we really focus on delighting the early adopters, making sure that the product works really well for them, that we understand what the source of the value is that we figure out whether or not we found product market fit before we move on to opportunities to sort of further expand.
0: And I love that thought process. And anyone who follows me on LinkedIn knows that I would agree with Dan 100%. And it is so easy as an inexperienced product manager to build new things. It is much more difficult to refine existing functionality. And Andrew Cheng calls it the next feature fallacy. That there's this fallacy, you will build that feature and your it will solve all of the problems that you have at your business or your products is facing. But what is much more important is that core product offering. Because just like you, Dan, you couldn't get past some core functionality that you're really stuck on. And so why would you take that next step further into the product? And definitely agree. I think that's a great insight.
1: That's right. And our, our founder and CEO, Andy Rackluff is obviously famous for saying this, that you can't uh, sort of iterate your way to product market fit. It's either the dogs eat the dog food or they don't. And if they don't, adding features doesn't solve the problem. And so we, that's a very core sort of tenet of our product development process at WellFarm. We really try and hone in on what is the root of the value that we're offering in the value hypothesis. How do we test that as quickly and as effectively as possible? And figure out whether or not we're right or wrong. If we're right, then we can always build on growth. If we're wrong, we go and test the next hypothesis.
0: And so at Wealthfront, you mentioned a little bit about your thought process of building new functionality and expanding. How do you think around really keeping those resources invested in the core product versus shifting resources elsewhere into new product offerings?
1: We use a framework internally that we call exploration versus optimization. And so we try to allocate our time across those two areas, Um, and the percentage of our time differs depending on the stage of the product, depending on sort of where the company is and the strategy at a given point in time, but we really try and balance between exploration of new opportunities, and those are things that are highly uncertain. They're generated by customer insights. Many of them fail, we go out and test a lot of things and end up throwing them away or shelving them for the future. And then also optimization. And optimization is focused on taking our our existing product and just making it better. And so we really look at basically balancing between the two of those based on the the product strategy. You have to do a little bit of both given the stage of growth that we're in, where much of our growth is going to be driven by new products. But by making an explicit sort of decision on how much time we're spending on each, we can actually be much more intentional about the trade-offs we make and when we might be indexing too far in one direction versus the other.
0: Got it. And when you're testing an idea or a concept, how far do you typically get? Is this a concept that you're testing, maybe a prototype, or do you actually start some code and start building something that's usable for your customers?
1: It always depends on the product, but but in most cases, uh, we actually view getting to a clickable prototype is actually the most effective way, particularly with consumer products, to really Get as concrete evidence as possible that someone is going to use it and really understand sort of why they're going to get value from it. You can sort of test interest, conceptual interest, by talking someone through an idea, but the rubber really meets the road when it comes to the implementation of the product. And uh, you know, just as the you know the the common phrase of people uh, they do do very different than what they say. Our customers will often indicate conceptual interest in an idea, but when it comes down to implementation, you learn that it's actually not that compelling. And so we really try and focus on taking a core insight, formulating a point of view on if this is actually a problem for our customers, what might a vision of how we solve it look like? We turn that into a prototype and then we put it in front of customers and we actually push them to figure out if if that product existed, would they would they use it? Would they buy it from us? Quote unquote. And then if the answer is no we really push to understand why. And usually in that process of pushing to understand why, you uncover an insight about what the problem really is, which then allows us to sort of iterate on our point of view.
0: That is definitely super interesting. And what I think most customers don't realize is the cost of development. And to your point, if you ask, hey, should we build this? They're going to say yes, (laughs) because I don't have to build it. You're going to build it for me. (laughs) But if you ask, if you pass the cost onto them, Let's say we think 100,000 people from Wealthfront could pay us for this product. We need to charge them $5 for this feature. You pass the cost and then you say, would you pay $5 for this feature? It gets a little more interesting when it starts to come out of their own wallet because now they're paying for it and now Wealthfront is not paying for it yourself. And so I love how you think about that. And so is that really how you test product market fit or really whether you should move forward with the feature is really the, the pricing power of that feature?
1: It's not always pricing. Oftentimes, it's, uh, would you deposit money? Would you uh, commit funding to be part of an early access program? We really try and find something that creates a sense of commitment to use the product. But that is really the way that we assess whether or not we should pursue a new product. And and it's particularly important in our business, given the development timelines and the complexity of the products we build, both sort of technologically, but also from a regulatory and compliance perspective, is incredibly high. And so if we're going to go spend six months to a year bringing a new product to market, we want to know that we're pretty darn confident that that's going to actually have the impact that we expect. And so we don't get 100% of those bets right, but our process is oriented on sort of tipping the scales in our favor that we're going to be be right more often than not. And when we are right, right with a very, very high magnitude of success.
0: Is there a recent example that's now live and maybe there is a recent press announcement that did pass that test and that you did move forward and end up developing?
1: Yeah, so I think our best example, I'll actually give you two counterexamples where we were right and where we were wrong. If you go back to late 2018, we had one hypothesis in the business that before clients would invest with us, you need to plan. You need to actually do financial planning. We had signal from our existing customers that our financial planning offering Was really valuable and sort of had resonated with them. So the thought was let's release free planning as a way to acquire customers and then convert them into investment clients. That was something that we ended up launching. It drove customer acquisition, but not to the magnitude we expected. It was a pretty significant bet for the business that obviously passed our customer development process. On the heels of that, we were also testing, we had made the observation that our customers had a lot of cash sitting in sort of low interest bearing accounts. And so a couple months after that, in early 2019, we launched our high interest cash account, which pays interest through partnerships with program banks on the cash holdings our customers maintain with us. And that product blew away all of our expectations and nearly doubled our business in 2019. And so two examples both passed the process Two very big bets, long development cycles for the business. One didn't work, one worked, but ultimately sort of entirely made our year and then some. And so that was really what sort of led the genesis of the, the idea that we can move beyond investing to support not just sort of a long-term diversified portfolio that our clients want to maintain, but really support them on sort of their nearer term banking needs as well.
0: Thinking back to the beginning and the ideation and and concept development for both of these, can you think back to any differences for the first product with the planning that perhaps maybe there was a tell or a sign that this is something that shouldn't be brought to market? So I
1: think, and honestly, our process has gotten, gets better every time we do it. But at the end of the day, so much of this is, is a judgment call and it's really on. I think this is why it's so important that product managers are really you know intellectually honest with the data they're gathering from customers, you, you, you sort of view your job as, well, I'm here to build things. But at the same time, so much of the impact you can have is making sure you don't build the wrong things. Every time we run our process, the question we really try and focus the team on is just because someone said they wanted something, let's really drill in and understand how much do we trust what they said? How many more people like them do we think are out there? And what was the sort of magnitude of, we call it sort of leaning across the table. And so we have a bunch of examples internally of interviews that we put together where customers actually are leaning across the table for a product. And so we actually store those on our wiki. So we can calibrate ourselves as to what does it mean when someone's really demanding a feature from us or a product. And then it's just a matter of really calibrating your judgment against that. And again, it's not foolproof. That is sort of the hard part of product management: is we're never going to be right one hundred percent of the time. But it does help us over time take smarter and smarter bets with uh, where we place our product
0: development budget. Yeah, that's interesting. Having that calibration internally, so that everyone knows, even the new product manager on her very first day knows this is what it looks like.
1: <laughs> when someone wants to rip something out of your hands, yeah. Yes. It's hard to find, uh, but when you find it, you sort of know it. And so it's like every time we find it, let's like catalog that so we remember what that looks like.
0: One other interesting way that I've helped to kind of understand customer interests is always giving them options. Option A, option B, option C, and even completely different features. Should we build A, B, or C? And usually it helps them decide, hey, I'm more interested in this or I'm more interested in that, instead of thinking and, and making decisions in a vacuum of, should we build this or not build this feature? They're almost always going to say, yes, please go ahead and build it for me. But if it's like, okay, here are some things that we're considering on the roadmap, or here's where the roadmap could go, it has been a little bit more telling on where that interest really lies because they have the relative comparison.
1: Yeah force the customer to make the trade-off
0: yeah trade-off <laughs> as well and so thinking back to both you know maybe we dig into one of these or maybe it's somebody else you want to dig into but what does that process look like today to then let's say we validated this concept we want to bring this concept to market what does that that product spec process look like or that engineering handoff do you use job stories or user stories or is there any way that you're really defining and specking out those features
1: we operate in a, a fairly standard kind of agile structure, use user stories, um, love or hate Jira. We use Jira to manage our development process. Um, that's a very highly collaborative development process between design, product, engineering. We have a fantastic team of content designers. We have a compliance team that it collaborates you know, hands-on in that process to make sure that we have the right disclosures. We sort of can say the things we want to say while also staying compliant. And that... Gets delivered in sort of two-week sprint cycles we take advantage of a lot of um, experimentation internal testing with employees um, and then uh, testing with customers and, and figuring out if we we're right or wrong
0: and as a financial services company are you able to ship at the end of every sprint or you generally have to hold and then make sure that this you know past compliance and regulation
1: it really depends on the feature so some of if you take some of our uh, past product launches like our banking features that was a uh, a year-long product development effort where we couldn't really ship anything until all of the pieces were in place but we also put stuff out minor improvements to the product every every two weeks based on what we're seeing from customers and, and those go out oftentimes daily as they're ready so we have a we have really robust i think one of the things i really enjoy is we have a, a robust experimentation framework to allow us to ramp features up and down um, run run tests and subsets of our population to sort of maximize the learning we get from everything we put out the door
0: and it's been over two years as senior director at Wealthfront. What's a launch that you're most proud of?
1: Probably the biggest launch that I've participated in in my time here was our, our banking feature set last year, which we offer in partnership with uh, the Green Dom Bank. That was a just a Herculean effort across a number of teams internally to deliver what we think is an incredibly sort of compelling product that makes it really easy to bank and invest in one place pays you interest on your cash and offers sort of instant transfers to your investment account. And, uh, that required just everything from negotiations of a really complex contract with our banking partner to reviewing the plan in detail with our regulators to make sure that we were doing things in a way that they supported to building, uh, what is sort of we view as sort of proprietary infrastructure to actually move money and, and handle settlement. And then ultimately delivering a user experience on top of that, which is sort of the tip of the iceberg, but masks all that complexity from customers. So they can sort of easily get through their day-to-day tasks. And that that was just a uh, an incredibly uh, satisfying launch, given the work that went into it. And you know, we're, we're excited about sort of what that's going to be able to do for our business long term.
0: Awesome. Yeah, that's really exciting. Moving into that full stack service for those customers. And was this a launch that was validated by customers or is it viewed as that strategic company bet?
1: Everything we do is always always goes through the process of, uh, of sort of what I call customer development um, to validate it with customers. And so this one was no different. This was another one where it was validated on the backs of our high interest cash account we saw incredible energy and demand for the ability to direct deposit and use a debit card to get cash out of ATMs and sort of move your entire banking relationship to to wealthfront from you know many of our customers are still on legacy traditional banks that offer poor digital experiences. you know they charge you fees to justify the the branches. And so and most of our customers don't need to avail themselves of those things. and so we can offer them, a much better experience from a mobile app. And because of our cost structure and we deli- and because we deliver things through software, we can give more of the economics back to the customer.
0: I'm sure with COVID too, it's only accelerated digital banking. I have not been to a teller in quite some time here. It's not worth the risk at this point. <laughs>
1: That's right. We were expecting far more uh, usage of cash, I think, uh, ATM withdrawals. And uh, even that is is just not a thing anymore. So,
0: A new era is upon us. Yep. <laughs> and thinking around as you're developing or finding this feature, how did you incorporate user insights into the, the decision-making process?
1: We have a variety of sources of customer insights. I think one of our sort of secret weapons as a company is our consumer insights team, which is an extremely sort of experienced team that is constantly sort of working ahead of our roadmap on a variety, using a variety of methods to basically help us understand where our customers are thinking about and what our customers are thinking about next. And so we have a constant stream of data coming in from them, from surveys, from qualitative interviews, from other sort of advanced sort of insights generation methods that they use. And that forms sort of a foundation of giving us direction on where we want to orient our attention. And then we use sort of the traditional methods like user research, um, usability testing. We have a data science team that is able to generate sort of incredible insight from the data about our customers that we have. And then obviously the product managers are out talking to customers as well. Our product support team is another huge asset to us when it comes to insight generation. So every day we get a report on the tickets from the prior day. So every product manager can read through the tickets, figure out what customers are asking Our product support sort of goes a team goes a step further and actually helps us catalog those, categorize them, surface things that are coming up frequently. And we use those to sort of enhance the product and then also validate sort of bigger opportunities that we're thinking about to really just spot spot themes in what are our customers expecting from us next? And that's an incredible advantage when just you think about sort of the investing market right now and the monumental shifts in consumer behavior that we're going through to be able to sort of see that happening in real time through our data that's coming in from the inquiries that we get asked every day from our existing clients is a sort of a huge influence over our product development process.
0: And you mentioned your secret weapon, your insights team, and you have one of the best in Gnome, who is definitely a thought leader. So if anyone's looking to learn about user research, follow (laughs) Gnome Siegel on LinkedIn, (laughs) phenomenal thought leader. He's on Clubhouse as well. So definitely get in touch with him. He also mentors up and coming researchers and has a his own website. He has his own newsletter. So definitely check out his content. What's an example of maybe a research project for the banking product development that you partnered with Noam on or maybe, you know, someone else on the research department that maybe develops some key insights as you're developing this feature?
1: One of the focus areas when we were preparing to launch that feature was we knew people wanted to use direct deposit with Wealthfront. What we didn't know, we had less sort of visibility into is exactly how they wanted to use that. And so we worked with that team to run a number of surveys and really understand what is the intended use of direct deposit. And one of the things that came out of that was direct deposit can serve both a primary banking use case where you put your entire paycheck into Wealthfront and you pay your bills out of the account, you route the excess to your investment account. But it can also serve sort of a supplemental banking relationship where you put part of your paycheck, maybe a Porsche you want to sort of, just as your 401k automatically comes out of your paycheck, you want to actually partition off a fixed amount of money that's going to go directly to Wealthfront to, to save every month. And so it really those insights really expanded our view of the potential use cases we could embrace with direct deposit that would ultimately drive you know, what we care about is our business grows with assets. And so it was another way that we could speak to customers and talk about the benefits of using the banking features to get more value out of Wealthfront.
0: And how about post-launch? I love to hear a little bit about that. You know, incorporating user insights, was it through the support team? Were you running surveys? Maybe you're looking at social media. Perhaps some microsurveys were mixed in. What does that look like?
1: It's a little bit of all the above. We run surveys of our customers. A few months in, we looked at people who had churned to try and understand why they churned and what we needed to deliver to keep them around. We looked at people who opened an account but didn't end up direct depositing to understand sort of what were the barriers that prevented them from doing so. We used a platform called dScout this was actually probably the coolest part, which was the first time I had ever done this as part of a product launch, but to, to do uh, diary studies with uh, a small group of early adopters of the product. And that gave us sort of unparalleled insight into what was really working and what wasn't. And those are videos that we can sort of play at our you know biweekly product reviews for the rest of the team, and really just gave us a depth of insight there that, that you usually don't get, because you can't get the direct verbatims. And so... It was really just a mix of methods that gave us clarity on the core of the features are resonating, but banking is also characterized by long tail use cases. And so we had nailed sort of the core use case, but we had to continue to continue sort of expanding the audience for that product. We had to continue delivering the other features that people need to manage their day-to-day banking.
0: I love how you're taking those video clips and sharing them back with the team and really humanizing those insights. I think it's easy to look in analytics and just see aggregate data. I think it's easy to look at, even in some cases, survey data and see some aggregate data. But I think it's so important as product managers, we pull out the specifics of this is Dan, this is what Dan's saying in this survey, or this is a video from Allison, and this is what Allison said. And I remember at, Wee- at Weebly, our user research team actually played a video at All Hands of someone struggling to close a pricing overlay. And the person you know sat there for about a minute trying to close- The rage click. <laughs> yes, the rage click. Closing this overlay over the screen for pricing. There was a very small gray X and he was so frustrated, he just closed the browser completely and there was no chance he was going to upgrade <laughs> and, and not want to go back into that experience because the affordance was so poor, he could not figure out how to go out. And it was very- illuminating for our growth team which is always thinking around you know how can we increase revenue and how can we optimize this funnel and it turns out hiding the close button is not perhaps the best solution there <laughs>
1: that's right make it make it easy to cancel and more people will buy in the first place so yep. yeah yeah <laughs> it's so true and i think you also the other thing you get from those videos is uh you can sense the energy people have about the features it's uh, it's one thing to sort of read a customer verbatim on a sheet of paper or on a slide, but to actually see them say it, you can really gauge. And once again, if we go back to sort of the judgment on is this something that people really want and are clamoring for, the only way you can really assess that and have a productive discussion in the team about about our judgment on that is if actually if we're actually all looking at sort of how they're saying it. And so I really do think that that's a um, that's such a critical critical aspect of uh, just understanding what's working and what's not.
0: Yes, I think that's a great point. It's the excitement and the frustrations and hesitations, because I was actually, we're we're thinking around, you know, we're in COVID at UserLeap, how can you really have people understand the impact that we're making? And it came across a Harvard Business Review article, and it said that the number one way that employees and teams are motivated is by customer empathy. They want to hear about this individual using Wealthfront and the impact that it made on her life. And that's something, whether you're in finance, you're in engineering, you're in product, you're on the regulations team, that's actually what they found to be most motivating is that customer empathy, more than the revenue goals, more than how well the company is doing, more than how fast you're growing, more than how much money you've raised. Those are all interesting. But the customer empathy and the impact, I imagine, at Wealthfront you can play some videos of that impact of switching from maybe a legacy system to a modern, streamlined, easy to use banking system that also has a higher interest rate. <laughs> you can imagine that people will be very, very excited about that. And I'm sure it's very motivating for you and your team.
1: And I think you, to your point about the X, you also noticed the small things that matter. So one of the surprises that came out of that was uh, how delighted people were that we included a copy and paste action next to their account routing number. The idea that most banks, you have to sort of fumble around with the mouse to kind of highlight or tap on it on the phone. And it's not selectable to actually highlight and grab your account routing number to put it into whatever site you're trying to to link to. We gave them a single action to do that. And that came out of prior user research, just thinking through the user journey of making the switch to a new bank. But it was amazing how delightful that was to people. And so you, you, you realize that the little things matter um, a lot when you're actually crafting the user experience.
0: Absolutely. And now that you're managing a team of product managers, how do you really instill that customer centricity with you and your team? And is that something you look for in hiring? Or is that something that maybe you just instill as you're onboarding product managers and, and as they grow at the company?
1: Yeah, we look for it. And we absolutely look for it in hiring. And for me, it's really just about curiosity. Do people have sort of genuine curiosity about the world around them? And does that lead them to sort of ask second order questions about what's going on and why? And you can sort of figure that out by just understanding sort of where they've uh, not understood something and spent time digging in to understand it and sort of what depth of insight were they able to get to about why the world works the way it does, why a particular user behaves in a certain way. And so I really just look for examples of that. And that's very, in my mind, predictive of, is someone going to be focused on customers and exercise good judgment when it comes to deciding what we should build and what we shouldn't build? And then internally, it's really just about trying to remove as many barriers as possible to bringing customer data to bear on... The decisions that we have to make. So that means making it really easy to read the tickets that customers are sending on a given day, making it really easy to access data, how our customers are using the product, making it really easy to spin up user research if we need to, um, or a survey, and then really just reinforcing a culture of objectivity. Opinions are very easy to assert, and it's really, it is important for product managers to have a point of view. But it's equally important to sort of pair that point of view with an objective assessment of the data that we're looking at. And so I think really encouraging the team to, if we believe something, what can we do to increase our confidence that that thing we believe is actually accurate? And we do that through a variety of mechanisms, but all of them start with sort of customer data, both qualitative and quantitative.
0: And this podcast is about customer empathy and those people-driven products and I think historically, companies have always been focused on their own needs as a business and ignored the needs of of customers. But with competition and more and more products entering every vertical and every space, it actually makes the customer more and more important in the story. And we have to build for them and really solve for their needs and deliver the best possible experience. But one area that we've been digging into in this podcast so far is balancing business and company needs with customer needs. And it sounds like a very customer-centric culture at Wealthfront, which is great. But I'm curious how you actually balance those two to really create that win-win experience for both the company and the customer.
1: For one, we're in a very fortunate position where our incentives are directly aligned and our business model is directly aligned with that of our customers. Um, I think that's what makes our mission so powerful. When our customers grow their savings, we make more money. And so we're earning with them, not from them. That allows us to really focus on how do we deliver products that delight them, that help them grow their money in a faster, smarter way. How do we win more of their share of wallet and get them to put more money with us over time? And if we do all of those things well, then our business is going to grow and our revenue is going to grow. That isn't true of all companies, so we're very fortunate in that regard. But that that really is like probably at the core of it. And then we use things like our core values. So our client's best interest is one that not only is a core value of us, but we also hold a fiduciary obligation as our client's investment advisor to work in their best interest. And so really for us, the there is a direct overlap between serving customers and serving our business. And when, when they're in conflict, in the rare cases where they're ever in conflict, we have a culture that always prioritizes what's right for the customer. And I think that 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 has rewarded us over time with uh you know a loyal following of people who who really do trust us.
0: Yeah, it's great having that alignment I'm sure it makes it so much easier as a product team.
1: It does. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And when you think around the quarterly or annual planning as a product team, are there customer metrics that you also think about, perhaps a NPS or customer satisfaction or other types of like softer metrics that measure customer progress, are you seeing that the alignment of the customer in the business can actually be in a single metric, like you mentioned?
1: So I'd say the, the the measurement of sort of are we delighting customers comes through more naturally just in the ongoing research that we're doing, and so we don't actually surprisingly we don't we don't use MPS. I believe our support team uses CSAT, but as a product team, we generally have a good sense for is the product delighting customers based on the ongoing research we're doing. And then we look at sort of our corporate metrics and our product area metrics to assess progress against goals. And so we generally believe that if we're doing a good job, we will be attracting more customers to Wealthfront and they will be putting more and more money with us over time. And those two things are the two biggest drivers of our our business success, and so that's really what we focus on.
0: Really great to hear. And the fintech space—I'm sure you're aware—there are some other companies involved. You're not, you know, the only one building in a vacuum. How do you think about competition? Is that is that something that's involved in your user research process at all? Where you're maybe acknowledging those competitors or asking how customers think about, you know, Wealthfront and other services?
1: We do. We primarily use it to understand the alternatives our customers are considering. And validate our theory on sort of why they would choose us over those alternatives. I generally believe it's unhealthy to overly focus on the competition because uh, you sort of can never you can never win by a, so I, I grew up racing sailboats in college, and I think one of the one of the things that you're always taught now what I was taught was uh, if you're behind, you can't follow the lead boat. The only hope you have to win the race is to take a different course and hope for a wind shift. And that sometimes happens, sometimes it doesn't. And so sometimes you come in second or third or whatever, but on um, the few times you get the wind shift, if you're positioned differently, you can capitalize. And so I think the, the same is true for competition. We understand what's out there because it's a key input into sort of our theory of what strategy we're pursuing, but we really try and focus on what are we doing that's different and putting us in, in a position to take advantage of shifts in the market or better serve a specific target customer where we think we have unique insight that no one else has. And so so it's really it's really used for for that purpose.
0: Awesome. And one of my favorite books on strategy is called Good Strategy, Bad Strategy. And it talks about Southwest having this really cohesive and strong strategy. And it also talks about all the aircraft companies and, and airline companies that actually copied Southwest. And we're not successful. It's very, very common for people to try to do what Southwest does and it never works. And so absolutely right.
1: And Southwest is a great example of not just business strategy, but culture reinforcing the core strategy, uh, being incredibly focused on it, incredibly customer centric. I really love the story of that airline. It just teaches you so many great lessons about how you build a great business.
0: And and definitely recommend that book if anyone's interested in <laughs> leveling up their strategy We've got a couple minutes left here. Daniel, one of the last questions we always like to wrap up with is what's your top piece of advice for other product managers who want to create products people love?
1: I go back to the curiosity point. I think that is just such a key aspect of being a great product manager. Is uh, you anyway, know, It's one I try to exercise today because I still have a lot to learn, uh, which is just being curious about the world around you, asking really good questions and continuing to to sort of find new ways to learn you know assumptions get upended all the time we, we see that right now and uh in what we're seeing in the investing market and as a product manager your job is to know when those assumptions are getting upended before others do so it really starts with curiosity and just keeping keeping an eye out for that sort of data point that doesn't quite make sense and then being willing to drill in and figure out why and that that is really where 9 times out of 10 results in nothing, but it's the one time out of 10 that it turns into sort of a game-changing insight for the business and uh that's the guidance I give uh everyone who uh who asks.
0: <laughs> awesome. Strong opinions loosely held. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And you know, as product managers to your point, it's about questioning our own decisions, making sure that those are the right decisions and we just hired our first product manager here at Userleap. And she said, one thing that stood out is that we're focused on making the right decision. And there is no, you know, highest person in the room. There's, there's none of that. It's really around what is the best decision for the business, for the customers. And ultimately, I love to be wrong. I always tell the team, I I love to be wrong. It means I hired a good team and we're looking at the right data. We're questioning our own assumptions. And so I love that advice for everyone listening in. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure having you and learning about Wealthfront and how you think about product. And is there anywhere we can find you online or any, if anyone's looking, do you want to give a shout out for the careers page?
1: We have a small product team at Wealthfront, but we are uh, hiring for a few roles. And so uh, you can find that at the, just at wealthfront.com slash careers. Yeah, I'm online on, on all the platforms you might expect, although not Clubhouse because I'm Android. So... I'm still waiting on that one, but I'm on Twitter at, at Dan Slate. I write a little bit on Medium when I have time and, and LinkedIn as well.
0: So Awesome. Follow Dan on Twitter. Check out his articles, The Visionary's Dilemma. Really great read. And if you're interested, check out the cruise page at wealthfront.com. Dan, thanks so much for joining. Awesome. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to request a guest or ask a question, email me at ryan at userleap.com. And if you need a tool that helps you get customer insights easier, faster, and more accurately, check out UserLeap. After my time managing products at other companies, I wanted a simpler way to do customer research, obtain insights, and use those insights to make the right product decisions. That's why I founded UserLeap. Our microsurface help you get in-depth user insights in real time, understand the why behind your data, and ultimately ship the right thing for your customers. UserLeap is used by product managers at companies like Square, Adobe, and Dropbox, and it's super simple to get started. Try it free or learn more at userleap.com.